We're going to talk today about the godly virtues that need to happen inside the church and then also godly virtues that are then lived outside the church, talking about two distinct cultures. What does the culture inside the church need to look like so that when you go out into the world, you'll know what virtues need to mark your life as you engage with difficulty and maybe even opposition? In 2004, in First Things Magazine, there was an article by Robert Wilkin, who is a leading American historian. Uh, he's a, an expert on early Christianity. He had just finished a tour of Europe and was reflecting on the state of Christianity in Europe and in the West, in the United States as well, and he wrote these words about the challenge that we face. Read this carefully with me. Nothing is more needful today than the survival of Christian culture. Because in recent generations, this culture has become dangerously thin. At this moment in the church's history, it is less urgent to convince the alternative culture in which we live of the truth of Christ than it is for the church to tell itself its own story and to nurture its own life, the culture of the city of God, the Christian Republic. That was 13 years ago. And what is he saying? He's saying that if the church doesn't understand who she is and have a robust gospel-centered culture, then we don't have anything to give to the world. In other words, if somebody comes in who's not a believer, and if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope that you sense something different today about this gathering of people. Because frankly, if there is no difference about this particular gathering, then why would anyone believe that the gospel is true? Finished a book about three or four days ago, I mentioned it two weeks ago, called The Benedict Option. The author, Rod Dreher, says this, the best witness the church can offer to post-Christian America is to be the church as fiercely and creatively a minority as we can manage. This morning what I want to do is to talk about two kinds of cultures. Culture inside the church and then culture outside the church. To reflect on what does it mean to be in exile and have the kind of culture that when you gather together on the Lord's Day like today or in your small group or in a Bible study that there are particular virtues, qualities that bind your heart to another person who's a follower of Jesus and what should that culture look like so that you are then empowered to go out into the world and to make it another six days. The aim of our gathering this morning is to, to kind of emulate what the text talks about here today and to figure out how do we sort of be the church so that we can be launched out into the world to be the church. The reality is that followers of Jesus have to think about both cultures, the internal one and the external. See, if you only think about how to respond to the outside world, but you neglect the home front, then Christianity has no credibility. I mean, after all, who wants to believe in something that doesn't work at home or in people's lives or in marriages or in relationships? On the other hand, if all you think about is internal culture, like how, what should the church be like, what should home be like, what should marriage be like, and you never think about how to engage the culture, Christianity will not be relevant or applicable to a world that has lost its way. After all, who wants to listen to a message 
who wants to listen to the gospel when it doesn't address the real issues that real people are struggling with. So to be a Christian requires that you live in two cultures, or let me put it this way. When you live Monday through Saturday in the world in which you live, who's gonna help you figure out how to navigate your way through that? Who's gonna help you deal with temptations? Who's gonna help you deal with struggles? And, and what is the culture of your small group, your Sunday school class, your family, and, and your church need to look like so that when you're deployed out into the world, you know how to respond. And then when you're out in the world, how are you to respond? What are you to do when someone reviles you or makes fun of what you believe? You see, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're a student, whether you're retired, you need to think about both cultures, both how to respond to those who are increasingly hostile to what you believe, and then also how to have a group of people who are pouring their life into you, who are holding you accountable, who are speaking into your life. Christian exiles are called to navigate outside culture and also build an inside culture. Our text today helps us to see the calling of both of these cultures. What we have are two lists. There's five virtues for what the inside of the church is to look like, and there's five virtues for how we are to respond when we're on the outside. So I don't know which of these lists you need. You'll need both of them eventually in your life, but some of you need to think really carefully today about what does it mean to come to College Park Church? What does it mean to come even today? And when you got up, what did you think about your engagement of coming to church today? Others of you are in the middle of challenging situations and season at work, and this text speaks very clearly into how you're to respond. So let's unpack this. First, five virtues for inside the church. What are the things that we're to think about in regards to how we live with one another? What does it mean for us to be the church. Look at verse eight. He begins with the word finally. The word finally there is given as kind of a summary statement. This should not be something that you say when I make my final point in the message today. As one of the kindergartners in my wife's class said to her, and when she said, okay, now we're wrapping up, and one of them said, finally. You know, so <laughs> kindergartners just don't know enough to say, to, not to say that out loud, but you should, so please don't. <laughs> Finally, Peter is wrapping all of his content up here, and he's now speaking to all of them. Why all of them? Well, because previously, last week we talked about husbands. Prior to that, we talked about wives. Then we addressed in 1 Peter 2 how to think about engaging with um, employers that are unkind, how to think about... Um, human institutions, so he's kind of going through all of these different peoples and the challenges that they might be facing, and now Peter is gonna apply the idea of being in exile to the entire church. He's gonna talk about the kind of things that should characterize or be the fragrance of any gathering of believers, the kind of things that should characterize our gathering this morning, the kind of things that should characterize your small group, the things that should characterize even your home. This is the fragrance of the body of Christ. So there's five things. Number one, what should mark the church is the spirit of unity. The first adjective, and there's a number of them here, is expressed as unity of mind. Finally, he says, all of you have unity of mind. This is a Greek word that puts two words together, homophrones, meaning 
the same understanding, the same thinking. The idea is that there's a, a common mindset among these believers. Other translations render this as having one mind or harmonious. The New Testament places a high premium on having unity in the context of the body of Christ. I can give you example after example, but the scriptures regularly uphold the, the value of unity, that we live in harmony with one another. Now, why does the Bible talk about unity so much? Well, here's why. Because wherever there is people, there is a real possibility, even a likelihood of dissension and division. If we're honest, as human beings, we are a tribal lot. It's very easy for us to develop and fall into sort of an us versus them mindset. And frankly, our present culture makes this even more challenging. My goodness, with the presence of social media, you could just listen to people who think like you, talk like you, look like you, act like you. Cable news creates echo chambers where you just hear from particular people and a particular bandwidth. It serves to reinforce how, how right we are. Look at all the likes that I got on this post. Or somebody else thinks exactly like I do. Now Peter is not suggesting that the body of Christ is characterized by people who think exactly the same on everything. One of our values as a church is unity in the midst of diversity. But what he is highlighting here is that a Christian community should be marked by a common understanding of what's really important. That the body of Christ should be marked by what are we all striving toward and what is life all about? One of the reasons that we have a church covenant is to put into a written form, what does it mean to be a part of a body? What does it mean to be part of a church? In other words, is your involvement here just simply a place that you go? Do you just come to church here because either you enjoy the singing and the teaching is somehow helpful, or is there something underneath that that's even more significant in terms of what it means to be united to other people? You see, unity is something that is to be cherished and prized. You know what I found? I've been around the church for quite a while, now almost two decades. You know what I found? I have found that very few people ever blatantly set out to destroy unity. Nobody says, oh, I wanna help be disunifying. Nobody, hardly anybody has that. I've only, I can think of maybe one person I've ever met he doesn't go here anymore. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> this is my last church for sure. So, You know what I've observed instead? I've observed that the, the emotions, here's what happens. The emotions, the frustrations, or the fears that we have, they get the best of us, and before we know it, words come out, a post is published, an email is sent, and we don't consider the cost on unity. That's what happens. We've all done it. Our world is filled with division. And you know when the gospel looks most powerful? It looks most powerful when somebody would see all of us from all kinds of walks of life, from varying backgrounds, different preferences, strong opinions on different things, and could look at the body of Christ and ask the question, how in the world is that thing held together? And the answer would be, because of the beauty of the gospel. Because there's something that we all value. Peter says, first of all, have unity of mind. Here's the second thing he says, that we're to have sympathy. 
The idea of sympathy is a sharing of concern for one another. It means that we walk with one another through the needs, the joys, and the sorrows of life. It means that we know one another enough, at least a few people, that we're aware of what's happening in their life. The Bible calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to to weep with those who weep, That that a Christian community is marked by a real concern for others, a realization that life is not all about me. Listen, you need a group of people who are concerned about you, and you need a group of people of whom you are concerned. Have you ever wondered why on Sunday our elders, when we have prayer up front, as you just heard, our Elder Dwight pray we pray for people by name do you know it's unusual for a church our size to do that i've had people come in from all over the country and one of the things that they have commented is that's just an unusual thing to do and we do it on purpose and even if you don't know the name of the person that's being prayed for we still want to bring that name in front of you because it's a reminder that there are real people with real needs in the context of this body that what makes the church the church are the individuals of that church. And so my question would be, who are you praying for right now? A brother after first service came and said, remind them about the prayer wall. Actually, he said it this way, remind them about the prayer wall. (laughs) He reads scripture for us every once in a while, Al George, some of you know him. And the reason he said that is because we have a prayer wall with all sorts of requests that are listed It gives us the opportunity to pray for one another, to intercede for one another, to to be concerned about one another's needs. That there's a sympathy. When you came to church this morning, was there any thought of sympathy for other people? So easy to get stuck into a rut where you just think about my needs, my day, my desires, maybe your seat in terms of where you're sitting. Unity of mind, sympathy, third, brotherly love. Peter emphasizes here that believers have a a unique relationship with one another. This idea of family-like love, it's all over his letter. And he wants these believers to know, wants us to understand that Jesus, because of our relationship with him, because we're, as Peter says earlier, part of God's possessed people, because we are a people of his own possession, because we're a chosen race, because we belong to Jesus. That means that that we have a new context for relationships among us. So that means that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ. When we're walking the hallways of this church, remember that the people who you're hanging out with are your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to love one another in a way that fits with that relationship. You see, being a part of a church means more than just we're we're gathering once a week. It means that we have a a common love for the gospel, and that common love unites us in ways that transcends all kinds of other typical barriers. Therefore, to experience and to be the church, it it requires that we, we live out this brotherly love. Part of the reason why you're here even this morning is to put that love into practice. 
the normal and the healthy way for a church to function is in the context of that brotherly love where you are united with another brother or another sister and you're walking together for the purpose of helping one another endure. I've said this before, but if you're not connected to this body, if you're, if other people that, that you don't know anyone here, we're gonna do everything in our power to try and help that to, not to be the case, but you've gotta take some steps as well. And if you could be gone from our church for eight weeks and nobody would know that, that's not good from our standpoint. We'd wanna try and figure out to know that, but that's not good from your standpoint because there's a, a brotherly love that's supposed to connect you to people around you. Fourth, tenderness. The next virtue that should mark the body of Christ is connected to what we feel when other people are suffering. The ESV translates this as a tender heart. NIV renders it as compassionate. In the original language, though, it's a combination of two words, which is this. It's a combination of the word good and the word intestines. That's helpful, isn't it? Because that's how you talk to people all the time, right? Brother, man, I'm feeling you right in my, my, my colon, man. I'm feeling for you. That's... Now, why does the Bible talk that way? Why? The, the reason is that in, in the, the Greco-Roman time, they were trying to capture with a word what happens when we really feel someone else's pain. You ever, I'm sure you've had this happen, that somebody is so hurting that you feel sick to your stomach for them. That's the idea. The idea is that there is this tenderness, this, this good concern, the, the, the kind of thing where your brother or sister's burdens have become so much a part of your burden that they've, they've zapped your energy. They make you even feel a little bit nauseous, that what other people feel, you feel, and their ache is your ache, their pain is your pain. This is a vital part of what it means to be the church. One of the reasons over the last couple of years that our elders have worked on knowing our members more personally is because we want to recognize that part of what it means to shepherd people is to enter into their pain, and not just a few of them, but as many as possible. Right now we're making our way through the 900 or so prayer requests that have come in from our covenant member update, and our elders are taking time to pray for each of those requests because we think that part of what it means to be the church, no matter what size the church, is that we are in tenderness being concerned about the needs of other people. So here's my question for you. Do you know about the needs of other people around you? Who's on your list at present who you're praying for? Would it be wise perhaps for you to hang around a little bit after Sunday, after even this service, and to spend some time just getting, know, just getting to know one person and maybe even asking them if it's an appropriate point in your relationship, hey, how can I pray for you? Or how's, how's your life really going? Finally, is the word humility. All of you have unity of mind Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. You know what humility is? Humility is essentially having a right understanding of yourself in light of who God is, in light of the gospel, and in light of other people. It means 
that those people who have been rescued by God, who have been captured by his grace, who've understood that they've been rescued from their sins, they see themselves differently. They know the depth of their own sin and they know how much they've been forgiven and because of that, they then treat fellow sinners differently. Humility is only really possible if you understand the reality of the gospel. That's why if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is one of the things that I hope will pique your interest about receiving Jesus and becoming a Christian. I want you to understand that True humility, like true biblical humility, humility comes out of understanding that Jesus rescues sinners and that he paid for sins and that a Christian then has nothing to boast about because everything we have is a gift from God. In fact, that's why many people even reject Christianity because they, they think I've got to do something when the reality is no, Jesus is the one who paid it all, and if he pays it all, then that makes us a automatically humbled people. Listen, when you come to believe that, that changes everything. And I hope you will, maybe even today. Humility is not naturally, was not naturally prized by the Greco-Roman world. It was seen as a, as a weakness. And in so doing then, for a group of people to embrace humility would have set them apart in a very unique and substantial way. Tim Keller says this about humility. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience and every conversation with myself. I just want to give you a challenge this week. Listen to how many times in the context of a conversation that you jump in with some sort of me too statement. I picked Gonzaga to win. Me too. Who cares? Right? Why, why do we have to say that? Me too. Just let it go. Just don't even tell anybody. Hey, we vacationed in Destin, Florida. Oh, we did that too. True humility means I stop connecting every experience to myself. Friends, this is one of the reasons why we need to rehearse the gospel when we gather together. We need to be reminded who God is, we need to be reminded what he did for us, and then to be reminded of the effect of that on our relationships. So these are the virtues that should mark what our church, what your small group, what your family is characterized by. Do they fit? Humility? Tenderness, brotherly love, sympathy, unity of mind. These are the things that should, should characterize the culture of our church. If somebody were to walk in, and many people do, would they sense that culture among us? Would they sense that kind of spirit? Because every group of people has a culture. Sometimes you can just, you can just pick up on it. Let me give you two examples. Number one, when we were in um, London, England, we were riding a commuter train, and there is a culture in England on how you ride commuter trains. And that culture is you don't talk to anybody. In fact, we were laughing and carrying on. We came down the stairs, and there were 300 people waiting for the train. And we came down, came down the stairs laughing about something, and, and it was like dead. And all, they all looked at us. Like, shh. 300 people waiting for the train, and no one is saying a word. Different cultures have their own little culture. Or think of this. Is there not a culture in the elevator? Right? If you don't believe it, just test it. Next time, when you get in the elevator, let the doors close, turn around and look at everybody. 
and see how that goes, right? So there's a culture of what you're supposed to do. Everyone watches the numbers, right? Because they don't know what else to do. No one talks, right? No one asks big questions about the problem of evil or suffering in the world in an elevator. You don't. You just, you wait till the doors and then you get out and think, whew, that was awkward, until you get to the next one. Every little group of people, there's a particular culture. And this church has a culture. Our church has a culture. And part of our responsibility is together to build a culture within the church that's marked by these things. Why? So that we can have a place of safety that we can run to. We can have a place of comfort that we can go to. A place where people know us and care for you and help you to be able to think about what the gospel means so that then you can be deployed out into the world. The doors of the church open and you go back out ready to live another six days. And some of you are in the thick of it. You're facing what's going to come next in this text, which are five virtues for how do you live outside the church. How do you respond when Christianity becomes costly? What, what, should, be your, what should be our response when we're mocked or slandered or mistreated? Some of you need to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say because somewhere in the next few weeks or months, you're going to face this exact scenario. It's going to happen at a lunch meeting, it's going to happen in some sort of context in your business relationships, somebody online is going to make fun of what you've said, they're going to laugh at your standards and how you protect your marriage or what you do or don't do. Here's what Peter says, number one, how do you respond? You respond with Christ-likeness. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling or reviling. Does that sound familiar? It should. Because it's, it's nearly the same thing that Peter said in verse 23 about Jesus, that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. So Peter previously talked about the example of Jesus and how he's left us his example and model in terms of how we are to respond, that we are not to repay evil for evil. This sets Christians apart from the world in a dramatic but hard way. Because the natural response of every human being is simply to treat people in a manner that you've been treated. It only seems fair and just, doesn't it? Someone cuts you down, it's just so natural and quick that you're gonna respond to cut them down. If someone's being condescending, oh, it's so tempting to be condescending back. I mean, it's, it seems just like we're children who just have gotten older. Remember underneath that layer of your adulthood are children's sort of emotions? Remember in those days when someone would say something and you would say something really intelligent and powerful? This shut everybody down. I know you are, but what am I? Right? It's a brilliant comeback. Like, that ended all conversations, right? And then you, end, you just put infinity on it. That way it covered it all, right? It only seems fair and right that we would hit blow for blow, tit for tat, so to speak. And yet this text invites us to a very hard practice in following the example of Jesus and not responding like everyone else. And when we don't retaliate, we follow the example of Jesus and we make a loud statement that there is something very unusual about us. So just remember that the next time that somebody mocks you at school or mocks you at work, just remember when somebody makes a, a statement of some kind and instead of retaliating, you either say nothing or in a moment, 
We'll see that you're called to bless them. You need to see those moments of unfair treatment not simply as unfairness, but as a platform that you get to suffer. You get to be Christ-like. You get to show people how real your faith really is. That's the mindset that Peter is asking for us to embrace. And then, secondly, the other value is that of kindness. Not only Christ-likeness, but also something that we are called to act upon, not just to be passive, but he says here, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but instead, but on the contrary, he says, bless. This text, along with a number of others, calls those who are being persecuted to actually bless their persecutors. And this is not the only place where the Bible talks this way. Look at Luke chapter 6. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So what does this mean? What does it mean to bless? The idea of blessing is that you, you cry out to God on behalf of those who are unkind, that you are, in effect, asking God to be kind to them and to be gracious to them. You, you pray for God's grace to come into their lives. You, you pray the way that Jesus did on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In other words, you pray compassionately for them because they are only doing what is natural for them. It means that you see their cutdowns, you see their mockery, you see their opposition through the lens of the gospel, and instead of being angry that they're doing it to you, you have compassion on them because you know what it's like to be where they are. You were there until Jesus rescued you. You thought like they thought until he pulled you out of the, 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 the waywardness of your own sinfulness. And the gospel informs how you see them, and so therefore you can embrace unfair treatment, and rather than responding in retaliation, you can instead choose to bless them. And this is the kind of life that Peter has called us to. Is there anyone in your life right now that fits that bill? Anyone who you should be treating with the same kind of grace that God treated you? Peter talks about the beauty of what it means to live in this all outside culture. The inside culture helps propel us to the outside culture. It is a very challenging thing to do. And yet notice this third value, the third value of conviction. There's, there's, a, there's a weightiness to this, to, to respond in a way that is so unnatural and yet so hard. Peter says, this is what you have been called to. What does it mean to be called to this? For to this you were called. Here's what it means. It means that to be a follower of Jesus involves, has to involve, some level of opposition and suffering somewhere. That it is part of what it means to be a Christian. So I think it's safe to say that if you lived your entire life and you never faced any mockery and you never faced any unfairness and you never faced any kind of mistreatment, if nobody ever made fun of you and no one ever sort of mocked you because of what you believed or what you thought or how you acted or how you lived in light of the gospel, it might be that you're not actually a follower of Jesus. Because the calling here is connected to the essence of who you are. To suffer for the name of Jesus is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. 
That's why Peter in chapter 4 and verse 12 will say this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if some strange thing were happening to you. And yet I find, frankly, far too many believers who are surprised and aghast when suffering or hardship comes their way. And what 1 Peter is doing is to help to kind of reset us, to remind us, no, this is actually what, this is the way that most Christians throughout the history of the church have lived. They named the name of Christ and it proved costly, but they did it anyways because they loved and they cherished the value of the gospel, even if it proved costly. So the value of conviction. Fourth, the value and the virtue of hope. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. It's very interesting to me that throughout the New Testament, calls for suffering are often linked with the promise of future reward. That those who are called to endure and to not respond in a unchristlike manner are motivated in that response by the promise that they'll receive a blessing. This shows up other places in the New Testament. For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice this, rejoice and be glad. Do you know anybody who's like that? How's it going at work? I'm facing opposition, it's awesome. How's your, how was last week? Amazing, I got mocked by my coworkers. It's awesome. How was your week? Beautiful, I got taken down on Facebook because of my beliefs. Why should you rejoice and be glad? Because great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, there's just this, this different mindset that Peter is advocating here. So that part of the motivation for doing what is right in the midst of persecution or opposition is that you will be rewarded. Here's the deal, unfair treatment feels as though it's a total loss. So hard like, to, to know these people are saying this about me and I'm losing credibility or I'm losing face or this is happening to me and what do they think of me and the sense of loss or what about my future and the hope that is offered here that all of these questions while normal and understandable are for the follower of Jesus answered in terms of what Jesus is going to say about you, what he thinks about you, and what your eternal destiny is all about. And that's why Peter writes about the future inheritance. That's why he talks to them about who their identity is. That's why he calls them a chosen race. He reminds them, no, these are the things that are really important. So let go of what people think of you and let go if they mock you. Let go if you're unfairly treated because at the end of the day, Jesus comes and we win. And then finally, in verses 10 through 12, he quotes Psalm 34. And Peter has used this passage before. He cites it now to reinforce what he is saying and in effect calling us to believe what the Bible says. So he says all of this and then he anchors the virtues that he's just mentioned in an Old Testament passage. 
It reads, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He he quotes this psalm as a reminder of what the scriptures say. Namely, that if you want to truly live and see good days like eternal life, then keep your tongue from evil and don't speak deceit. Instead, turn from evil, do good, live, live peaceably and live in a godly way. He then goes on to say that God hears your cry and his face is against the ungodly. In other words, that God knows what is happening and he will be just. So what Peter is doing is linking that this, this persecution moment is connected to a strong belief that what the Bible says is indeed true. Listen, no one suffers well if they don't believe what the Bible says. It takes an enormous amount of belief to trust that you can entrust yourself to the one who judges justly because everything in you is gonna say no. I need to hit back, I need to push back, I need to do something that, 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 that stops this mocking from happening or this persecution from taking place. But what Peter is calling us, and some of you need to be reminded of this today, that following Jesus is worth it. You have to believe that someday Jesus is gonna make this all right. And you have to believe that so deeply and so intimately that in the moment, in the heat of the moment, when emotions are strong and words are flying and you're faced with what am I going to do in that moment that your heart says, no, the Bible is true, therefore don't respond. No, Jesus is going to make this all right, so I don't have to answer that. I don't have to be like that. And in so doing, suffering becomes not only challenging but also incredibly helpful because it proves that you really believe what you say you believe. Enduring through hardship and difficulty requires that you keep believing that the Bible is indeed true. Some of you need to mark that down in your minds and hearts because in a short time, you're gonna be tested or asked to suffer in some way. Someone's gonna mock you, someone's gonna be unkind to you, someone's gonna treat you unfairly because you're a follower of Jesus, and in that moment, these five virtues need to kick in. No, I believe the Bible. This is what I've been called to. I'm gonna bless, not gonna curse, I'm not gonna retaliate. You see, Christian exiles are called to live in two worlds simultaneously. Both realms require particular virtues and particular values. So the question is, where you are today, which realm is one that you need to take some steps in? For for some of you, you need to take some steps in being more intentional in connecting your heart and life to a gospel-centered culture in your relationships. That relates to how you approach Sunday, that relates to being connected into some kind of group, a small group, a Bible study. Some of you are trying to go it all alone and when suffering or difficulty happens, who's going to be there to help push you forward? Who can you text at 1.30 in the morning and say, would you pray for me? I am filled with anxiety right now. Who are you gonna say at six o'clock in the morning? Who are you gonna throw an email to and say, would you pray for me? I'm walking into a meeting today and I'm pretty sure I'm gonna have to say something in this meeting that's not gonna be well received. Who's on that list? And for that matter, who does that to you? Who calls you? Who texts you? Who emails you and says, would you pray for me? Whose heart is united to yours? Because brother or sister, 
if you're a follower of Jesus and you're trying to make it on your own, it is a very increasingly difficult environment to be able to do so. Others of you need courage for the challenges that you face at work, school, home, in your neighborhood. You need the grace of God so you can be a bold witness. You may even feel conviction this morning because the fact of the matter is very few people in your circle really know how important Jesus is to you. And that maybe needs to change. Maybe it is that you need a change of heart towards somebody in your sphere of relational influence who has been mocking, and today you know that God is calling you even now to pray blessing over them and to choose to love them. There's a culture inside the church, there's a culture outside the church, and God has called believers to live in both realms. He's called us to be the church in the church, he's called us to be the church in the world. This text calls us to have compassionate, deep relationships and bold biblical conviction as we're in the world. And in doing so, we become the kind of exiles that God designed us to be. Let's pray together. Lord, for brothers and sisters today who need to take steps towards having relationships and connections within this body, give them grace to know what to do today, even after this service. And God, for those today who face difficulties, persecutions, and all kinds of opposition, would you give them grace to know how to respond, how to be silent, how to bless, give them wisdom, give them grace, help them to know how to follow you, and thank you that you'll supply the grace that we need for everything we face. We ask this in the name of our King who's given us the ultimate example in Jesus' name, amen.